man. I am going to start this episode with a little story. When I decided I was going to be totally crazy and start this podcast, I was trying to think of a name for it, and I came up with the name Selfie Life. And I was running it by my best friend, who is a social media manager, like she does social media for a living, and she wasn't exactly a fan of the name because she thought it sounded like a prison podcast, which is not at all (laughs) what I was going for. But I was really excited that she even mentioned that and proceeded to tell her about Robert Hooke and how he was looking through his microscope at this like desiccated plant cell and he thought that it looked like the little cells that the monks slept in. So he used the word cell to describe what he was seeing through the microscope. I was thrilled to be able to share the connection between the two types of cells with my bestie. My friend wasn't particularly, like, enthralled or even entertained. But nonetheless, welcome to The Selfie Life. I am very excited about this episode on cells. I mean, it's kind of this podcast's namesake. Before we jump in, I want to thank you for listening. Please subscribe, and if you want to find the script notes, you can find them on the website at selfielife.com. And you can follow me on Insta at this selfie life, C-E-L-L-F-I-E life. And I also want to give a special thanks to Emily and Abby. They messaged me on Insta earlier this week about the podcast. And it honestly meant so much that you guys contacted me. I told Emily that I normally just feel like a crazy person sitting in my closet talking to myself. So it's really nice when people reach out and give me some feedback. So thank you so much, ladies. You know what? Let's just let's just dig in today. This episode, we will specifically be reviewing eukaryotes. So we as humans have a lot of cells. So it makes sense that we have an understanding of how they are organized and how they communicate and react with each other for the MCAT. And in true Selfie Life fashion, let's just start with a pop quiz. So you can base this off of the last episode. What is the main difference between prokaryotes and eukaryotes? Prokaryotes don't have membrane-bound organelles, and eukaryotes have membrane-bound organelles. Another difference between the two is that prokaryotes are always going to be single-celled organisms, where eukaryotes can be unicellular or multicellular. With multicellular organisms, such as ourselves, eukaryotes can form tissues and have a division of labor between the cells. This means that the cells will be specialized with form-following function. Some cells might need more mitochondria, or have more of a rough ER, depending on what type of work they are specialized in performing. I want to mention here that there are four types of tissue. Nervous, muscle, connective, and epithelial. We won't be covering tissue in this episode, but I wanted to mention the types since we just talked about eukaryotes being multicellular organisms and forming tissue. When I was first learning about all the science stuff, I had a really hard time actually keeping the cell types associated with the right name. 
I mean, I switched majors from a creative writing major to a biology major. So the change was a pretty big one. Anyway, I was having a hard time keeping prokaryotes and eukaryotes associated with the correct type of cells. I knew that one was the cell with membrane-bound organelles, and the other was the one that didn't have membrane-bound organelles. So, of course, I turned to my root words. Carrion is essentially the Greek word for nut, and you is the word for well. So eukaryotes are well-nutted. <laughs> I, I know, I'll let you insert your own dirty joke right there. But it makes sense. The old-school scientists were looking at these cells for the first time, and they see that they have these well-formed kernels in the nucleus. So they just called them what they saw. Eukaryotes have membrane-bound organelles. One more time. Eukaryotes, well-nutted, have membrane-bound organelles and contain a true nucleus. Let's start from the outside of the cell and work our way in, starting with the membrane. Membranes are responsible for some important things. They provide intracellular boundaries, like the mitochondria and the nucleus. Remember, we're talking about eukaryotes, membrane-bound organelles. So these lipid membranes can be found around the nucleus and the lysosomes and the other organelles. These membranes organize the cell and contain chemicals. They also regulate the flow of information and transport things into the cell and out of the cell. Starting with the components of the cell membrane, Actually, what are the three main components that make up the cell membrane? This is a quiz question. There's the phospholipid bilayer, cholesterol, and proteins. Let's review each, starting with the phospholipid bilayer, which also has three parts. So there is the phosphate head, the glycerol backbone, and the fatty acid tails. I'm sure you have seen the phospholipids sketched out, they look like a stick figure that is only a head with the two legs sticking out. Or I always kind of envisioned it as a jellyfish with only two tentacles hanging down. Or it could be a balloon with just two streamers. I don't know. Pick your phospholipid poison. So the head is the phosphate head. It literally is called a head. So this should be easy to remember. And it is hydrophilic. It loves water. And remember, water is polar, and the phosphate heads carry a charge. So this makes sense. What does a phosphate head look like? What is its chemical structure? So a phosphate head is a phosphate surrounded by four oxygens. And what do we know about oxygen and water? I mean, oxygen and hydrogen make up water, but oxygen is also one of the three elements that can form a hydrogen bond. So these phosphate heads love water. So you have the hydrophilic phosphate head, and then you have the glycerol backbone, which attaches the fatty acetals to the phosphate head. I like that they properly name the glycerol the backbone. It is the backbone. It holds it all together. It connects the head to the rest of the body. Attached to the backbone are the fatty acetals. The tails are hydrophobic. Phobic as in fear, like arachnophobia, fear of spiders, or this, this is actually one of my favorite fears, arachibutyrophobia. I have no idea if I'm saying that correctly. It is the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. I googled phobias, 
And that one was one of my favorites. You're welcome. (laughs) I know that's exactly what you were wanting to know, is phobias in the middle of a cell episode. Back to the plasma membrane. So we have two layers of these phospholipids with the hydrophobic tails facing in towards one another and the phosphate heads facing the water, a.k.a. the extracellular and intracellular fluids. If you're taking the MCAT and you're stressed and you're having a panic moment, just take a deep breath. And if you forget which is hydrophobic and which is hydrophilic, think about the cell being a water-filled bubble in a pool of water. The part that likes the water would be on the outside interacting with the water and on the inside. I mean, even take our blood, for example. Our blood is approximately 92% water. So the outside of the cells really need to love water. The phospholipids having a portion that is hydrophobic and a portion that is hydrophilic makes them what is called ampipathic. Phospholipids are ampipathic. Ampipathic because they have a hydrophilic and a hydrophobic. Something for you to start thinking about. What would be able to pass through the phospholipid bilayer? It is semi-permeable. As a rule of thumb, small and nonpolar molecules will be able to pass through. Cholesterol. Okay, so cholesterol in the membrane helps to maintain fluidity. It really works to keep the cell in a happy chill state. What keeps you in a happy chill state? Is it by chance food? Maybe a food that is high in cholesterol? Let's see, for me, french fries. Sweet potato french fries. All right, let's move on to proteins. There are two groups of proteins that are in the cell membrane. There are the integral proteins and the peripheral proteins. Integral proteins, or transmembrane proteins, these are the proteins that are integrated into the membrane. They are throughout the membrane. Peripheral proteins sit on the periphery, so they are on top or just slightly into the membrane. Integral proteins are often used to transport things in and out of the cell. They are integrated into the membrane. There are two types of transport proteins. They are channel proteins and carrier proteins. These transport proteins are very selective of what is permitted to pass through the cell. Channel proteins are exactly what they sound like. They are proteins with holes that go through them so that things can move into and out of the cell. They are hydrophilic tunnels through which hydrophilic ions and molecules can pass. Carrier proteins hold on to molecules and change shape in such a way that molecules are shuttled across the membrane. So carrier proteins are transforming to move things into the cell. Okay, so to review, our membranes are made of phospholipid bilayer, cholesterol, and proteins. I want to note here that there are actually carbohydrates called glycos that attach to proteins or lipids. They are called glycoproteins and glycolipids, respectively. And these play a really big role in communication with the outside world. Now that we have talked about what the outside of the cell contains on its surface, let's try to imagine how it might look. To do this, I want you to think back to when you were a kid, like kindergarten age, and you'd go to school 
and you'd make that macaroni art or you would glue macaroni and maybe beans and a, and a string and pieces of colored paper all to another piece of paper. And you'd take this masterpiece home to your parents and they would, they would praise you and tell you what a beautiful mosaic and, you know, hang it on the fridge. Now imagine you were looking down at a cell, but let's make the phospholipid heads red beans and the cholesterol, let's make it the string and the proteins are the macaroni and the glycoproteins are those little other pieces of colored paper you glued down. Now looking down on a cell this way, it looks pretty close to that mosaic you brought home back in the day. This is the fluid mosaic model. The fluid mosaic model describes the structure of the plasma membrane as a mosaic of components. The fluid part of the molecule is because there is a lot of potential for movement, up and down, sideways, back and forth. I think of it as sitting in a wave pool or in the ocean with your friends, where you're all on different floaties and you're hanging on to one another so you don't get pulled apart, but overall you just go with the movement. There are three major things that influence membrane fluidity. Temperature, cholesterol, and saturation. Temperature is the easiest. When the temperature decreases, fluidity decreases. When temperature increases, fluidity increases. It's rather intuitive. Think about coconut oil. When it's cold, that thing is solid. As the temperature increases, the fluidity increases. It, it literally becomes a fluid. Cholesterol is really a buffer in the cell membrane. I mentioned earlier it helps to maintain fluidity, but it does this by inserting itself into the spaces between the lipids. So it is monitoring and it is working to maintain the homeostasis in membrane fluidity. Saturation. Saturation has to do with the bonds of the lipids. If you remember some OCHEM here, the double bonds create weird kinks in the carbon chains, and full saturated carbon chains are predictable in pattern. Think of the saturated fatty acid chains as Pringles. Pringles stack very nice and tight in the can because they are all the same shape. This is what happens to the fatty acid tails. They can get packed tightly so they can't really move and fluidity is low. Unsaturated fatty acid tails are like the other chips that come in bags. They have weird shapes and kinks, so they don't pack together tightly. Unsaturated fatty acid chains have increased fluidity. Now let's talk about how things get through this freaking amazing and simple and yet so complex membrane. Also, random piece of, I guess it's trivia, huge organisms like wells and teeny organisms like ladybugs have relatively the same size of cell. I know that might be pretty basic, but I also think it's pretty cool to think about. But back to how things get through the membrane. Let's start with passive diffusion. Passive diffusion means that they don't require energy or ATP. When you hear passive diffusion, think movement down a concentration gradient. There are two types of passive diffusion, simple diffusion and facilitated diffusion. Just quick review, diffusion is simply the spreading out of molecules down their concentration gradient until an equilibrium is reached. Simple diffusion is the simplest type of membrane transport. 
the solute will move down the concentration gradient across the semi-permeable membrane. Okay, remember I told you to think about it earlier? Quiz time. What is an example of something that would be able to get through our lipid bilayer? Gases such as O2 and CO2 will be able to pass through the layer and will be able to pass through actually at a relatively fast rate because they are small and non-charged. Facilitated diffusion. Okay, facilitated diffusion is a type of passive diffusion. Energy is not required. With facilitated diffusion, we are going to take advantage of some of the proteins we mentioned earlier. Pop quiz, what were the two types of protein categories we mentioned being associated with the cell membrane? Integral and periphery. Good job. I know you got it. And with the integral proteins, what were the two groups? Channel and carrier. Woohoo! <laughs> you all got it, right? Okay, facilitated diffusion uses the concentration gradient and proteins to move molecules that have a charge like sodium or water. Remember that the phosphate heads of the phospholipid bilayer, they have a charge and the lipid tails don't have a charge and are hydrophobic. So molecules aren't going to easily diffuse through the layers. The channel proteins allow the small charged particles to move down their concentration gradient. The proteins can be gated or just open. We will talk a lot more about gated when we talk about the nervous system. Channel proteins are hydrophilic channels through which hydrophilic molecules can pass. Carrier proteins hold onto the molecules and transform in shape in such a way that they are shuttled across the membrane. While we are talking about diffusion, let's review osmosis. Okay, if water is what is moving along the concentration gradient, we have a special name for this, osmosis. So water is diffusing from an area of high water concentration to an area of lower water concentration. There are three stages or three different tonicities when comparing different solutions. Here we are talking about a solute that is not permeable. So the solute is not going to go through the membrane. And since we want to be doctors, we're going to look at cells in the discussion today. Hypertonic. Okay, a solution that is hypertonic contains more non-penetrating solutes than the solution it is being compared to. So if we have a cell that is only permeable to water and we drop it into a solution that is super salty, what's going to happen? What is the water going to do? The water from the cell will leave and go into the solution, which in turn will shrivel up the cell. Isotonic is when they are equal and there's no net movement of water. Iso, equal. Hypotonic is a solution that contains fewer non-penetrating solutes. So if we drop a cell that is permeable to water and the cell has a higher concentration of solutes, water will rush in, which can lead to osmotic rupture of the cell. I remember these by thinking hypotonic, as in a hippo, <laughs> like a cartoon hippo that is insanely round because of all the water that has gone into him. If ever you get stuck, just think back to the hypo-hippo. Active transport. 
active transport is when molecules are moved against their concentration gradient, which requires energy. That is super important, so I'm going to say it again. Active transport is always required when you are moving something against its concentration gradient. ATP can bind to a carrier protein, which will pump the molecules against the concentration gradient. Secondary active transport is sometimes called co-transport, but it is still a type of active transport, so it will require energy. But there is no direct coupling with ATP in secondary active transport. I think this way of transporting things across the membrane is actually pretty cool. Think of co-transport as a team sport. You can't play unless both are in the game. The actions of person A allow person B to complete their task so that both will win. Okay, so I didn't want to give this example. I was really hoping something better would come to mind, but nothing did. And this probably came to mind because my sister was 10 feet away watching a cop show while I was writing this. Okay, so in a drug deal on TV, you give one person the money and they make a call and then the other person shows up and hands you the merchandise. That's code transport. One person is given the energy, which causes an action that makes the other person perform a certain task. We will be covering membrane transportation and like specific examples in greater detail in a future episode, but I wanted to introduce the membrane transport in this section since we're talking about cells and that's where it's happening. So all of these are great for small molecules, but what about larger things that need to be brought into the cell? Endocytosis and exocytosis are for larger transportation. You might ship a car part in the mail, but you wouldn't ship a car through the postal service. Endocytosis is the process of taking things into the cell. This is further divided into phagocytosis and pinocytosis. Phagocytosis means cellular eating and pinocytosis means cellular drinking. Phagocytosis is the cellular intake of large particles and pinocytosis is cellular intake of liquid. Cell-mediated endocytosis allows for bulk transport of specific particles. A vesicle would form around the thing being brought into the cell, but only after very specific ligands have bound to proteins on the cell membrane. Exocytosis is the process of releasing larger molecules from the cell. So let's say the endoplasmic reticulum makes a protein. The protein is going to go to the Golgi apparatus for further processing and then it's going to go to the cell membrane to be released. Exocytosis, think exit. Stuff is being expelled out of the cell. Speaking of the endoplasmic reticulum and Golgi apparatus, let's review the organelles in the cell. Okay, so now we've made it through the cell's membrane, and we're in the cytoplasm. The cytoplasm is the gel-like substance that is the material inside of a living cell. We're going to start with my favorite organelle, the mitochondria, which everyone has heard is the powerhouse of the cell since, I don't know, elementary school. This means that the mitochondria makes the energy. It's where glucose is converted to ATP 
via cellular respiration. The biochemistry will be talked about in detail in a later episode, but I wanted to just remind you in this episode that the ATP is made via cellular respiration by the mitochondria. Mitochondria are kind of, they're bean-shaped, and they have their own phospholipid bilayers, two of them. They have an outer membrane and an inner membrane. The inner membrane has a bunch of folds to increase the surface area. These folds are called cristae. The cristae, the inner membrane, is where the enzymes for the electron transport chain are located. In the middle of the inner membrane is the matrix. So on the inside of the inner membrane, that area is the matrix. The space between the membranes is the inner membrane space. Again, starting from the cell cytoplasm and working our way through the layers of the mitochondria to the center, let's go over all those layers. From the outermost, so we have the outer membrane, which is a phospholipid bilayer, and then we have an intermembrane space, and then we have an intermembrane, which is another bilayer, and it has the cristae, so those folds, and then we have the matrix. Remember how in the last episode we talked about the endosymbiotic theory that suggests that mitochondria evolved from aerobic prokaryotes? I want you to keep this in mind because it would make sense if I told you that mitochondria are semi-autonomous. They contain their own genes that replicate independently of the nucleus, which means that the DNA replication in the mitochondria is not relying on the rest of the cell. Take a guess at what the transmission of genes that occurs outside the nucleus is called. So think about a cell and just just take a guess. It's called extranuclear inheritance or cytoplasmic inheritance because the genes are occurring in the cytoplasm or within an organelle in the cytoplasm, not in the nucleus. See, aren't mitochondria so cool? I also have a favorite organ, (laughs) which we'll talk about in another episode. I feel like if you are, (laughs) I don't know, as dorky of a nerd as I am, that you will also have favorite organelles and organs. I even have a favorite bacteria. What can I say? I'm just, I'm just cool like that. (laughs) Okay, moving right along. Let's talk about the endoplasmic reticulum. So the endoplasmic reticulum is also abbreviated as the ER. The ER is a bunch of membranes that are interconnected and contiguous with the nuclear envelope. The ER has a lot of folds. For some reason, I don't know, whenever I saw drawings or pictures of the ER, it always reminded me of like super chubby bulldog puppies where they're just like all little folds of skin. (laughs) They're adorable. So it has lots of folds and invaginations and this increases surface area. There are two types of endoplasmic reticulum. Smooth, lax ribosomes and is used for lipid synthesis, and the rough has ribosomes and is used for protein synthesis. The smooth ER is the real all-star of the endoplasmic reticulum. 
The Smooth ER not only synthesizes lipids, but it also transports the proteins from the rough ER to the Golgi apparatus, and it also helps in detoxification of like drugs and poisons. Hypothetically, and I, I honestly don't know the answer, but if someone is taking a little bit of poison every day to make themselves immune, like on Princess Bride, are they teaching their body that they need more of a smooth ER, like they need a greater amount of a smooth ER? So if you did an analysis of their cells, would they have an inordinate amount of smooth ER? Maybe? Just a thought? A future experiment, maybe? I don't know. Also, while we are talking about the ER, I have to bring this up. Do you guys remember years ago, Beyonce wore a dress and the internet freaked out that it looked like the rough ER? I know, like, every time, every time someone mentions the endoplasmic reticulum, I have that picture of Beyonce in that dress in my head. I'll also put it in my script notes so you know what I'm talking about. Okay, the Golgi apparatus. And I had to look this up because Golgi, I didn't I didn't know where in the world that came from. It's actually Italian. So it's from an Italian person that discovered the Golgi apparatus named Camillo Golgi. The Golgi looks like a bunch of circles that have been kind of like smushed together. It takes the items made in the ER and modifies them. So the ER puts out this little protein. We're going to call it a white t-shirt. Puts it in a package, a vesicle, and sends it over to the Golgi. Where the Golgi takes the white t-shirt and modifies it. Maybe it bedazzles it a little bit or adds some print. So the Golgi is modifying the cellular products by adding things like sulfates and phosphates and carbohydrates. After the Golgi has finished doing its modification, it directs things where to go. So it packages them all back up in vesicles and gives them directions. In the elementary school diagram, the Golgi is the FedEx hub, where they are sorted and sent out to be delivered to the correct locations. Endosomes. Endosomes are membrane-bound vesicles that help shuttle things around the cell. Specifically between the trans-Golgi and the membrane and the membrane and the lysosomes. Peroxisomes. I always liked the name of this organelle. As a kid, did your parents ever like put hydrogen peroxide on your scraped elbows or knees? And it like bubbles and stings. Peroxisomes contain hydrogen peroxide. Hydrogen peroxide helps to break down long fatty acid chains via beta-oxidation. Lysosomes. Lysosomes are, of course, membrane-bound, because remember, things are membrane-bound in eukaryotes. Lysosomes are cells that have chemicals that can help break down different substances ingested by endocytosis and also just cellular waste from the cell. It's pretty easy to remember since it's called a lysosome, as in lice, to break down. So the lysosome contains these hydrolytic enzymes that help to break things down. We mentioned just a minute ago, but remember that endosomes work closely with lysosomes, as well as the Golgi apparatus. So 
endosomes help to escort waste out of the cell. Okay, pop quiz-ish. <laughs> it's kind of a quiz. Which two organelles that we have mentioned would you think would be able to cause apoptosis or cell death? Well, apoptosis is cell death. Okay, the cell can kill itself in a process known as apoptosis. There are several ways to do this, but two that I found mentioned in several MCAT prep books were the mitochondria can release some enzymes, which triggers a cascade and results in cell death, or the lysosomes can release enzymes in a process called autolysis, which also can result in cell death. Okay, now I think it's time we talk about the nucleus. Did you guys think I was going to skip it? We are going to do just a little bit of an overview about the nucleus because the next few episodes are going to be covering genetics and we will chat a lot about the nucleus and where what is happening and it'll be really just like a nucleus review. So we're just going over the basics here. The basics of the nucleus. The nucleus is where the cell keeps its genetic material. Ooh, quiz. What other organelle can DNA be found in? If you said my favorite organelle, the mitochondria, you are correct. Okay, back to the nucleus. The nucleus contains the genetic material necessary for replication. I'm sorry, another pop quiz. <laughs> Actually, I'm, I'm really not sorry. During what phase of the cell cycle does DNA replication take place? S phase. Remember, it replicates during the synthesis phase of the cell cycle, so that when mitosis starts, all the nuclear DNA has been replicated. If you need to brush up on the cell cycle, mitosis, and meiosis, give episode one another listen. As you can imagine, or perhaps you just have like an intuitive understanding, or a real understanding by this point, the nucleus of the cell is very important. What do we do with important things? We protect them. So the nucleus has a nuclear membrane or envelope that is a double layer. So there is an outer membrane and an inner membrane. And communication between the nucleus and the cytoplasm happens through nuclear pores. What's cool about the nuclear pores is they actually, they span both layers of the nuclear membranes. So because it spans both layers, it is very selective about what it allows into the nucleus. I want to make sure that you understand the layers here. So let's imagine you have a really itsy bitsy, <laughs> not a spider, or an itsy bitsy yellow polka dot bikini. You have an itsy bitsy needle. And you need to go through the cell and into the nucleus. Assuming you don't puncture any other organelle, how many bilipid layers would you need to go through? So we have the regular cell membrane, and then we have the outer membrane of the nucleus, and then the inner membrane of the nucleus. So a total of three bilipid layers would need to be passed through. The nucleus has a subsection called the nucleolus. The nucleolus can be identified because it is a darker section of the nucleus. The nucleolus is actually what the old school scientists were seeing when they named it eukaryote. So the nucleolus is where ribosomal RNA is synthesized. 
I'm going to leave the organelles now and talk about the cytoskeleton. If you're stressing because we barely talked about anything genetic related, I have a few episodes on genetics and evolution coming your way. Actually, you know what? Let's talk about centrosomes. Remember in episode one, I called them centrosomes. They are some organelle where microtubules are organized and help to pull sister chromatids in mitosis and the chromosomes and sister chromatids apart in meiosis. If that isn't sounding super familiar, again, give episode one another listen. Okay, just for review, the centrosomes, centrosomes, they are the little organelle close to the nucleus of the cell, which will help in the physical splitting of the genetic material when the chromosomes get pulled apart mitosis. It is the spindle fibers that are made from microtubules that will pull the chromosomes to opposite sides. During metaphase, the chromosomes start lining up in the middle of the cell. The centrosomes, the organelles, are now on the opposite sides of the cell. Centrioles exist inside the centrosomes. Each centrosome has two centrioles. And centrioles are mainly composed of microtubulin. Again, everything I just mentioned was a review of some of the material we covered in episode one. So if you were confused at all, please listen to episode one again. Okay, microtubulin is a component of the cytoskeleton, which we're going to talk about right now. The cytoskeleton, as the name implies, skeleton, helps to maintain the cell shape. I mean, if we didn't have our skeletons, we would probably just look like a blobfish. So skeletons are very important. Along with providing structure, the cytoskeleton also helps transport material around the cell. There are three components of the cytoskeleton. Microtubules, microfilaments, and intermediate filaments. Starting with microtubules, since we were just discussing their roles in mitosis and meiosis, Microtubules are hollow, just like a tube is hollow. And microtubule filament is composed of a protein tubulin. (laughs) Makes sense, right? Microtubules are the largest of the cytoskeleton filaments, with a diameter of approximately 25 nanometers. Microtubules participate in meiotic spindle, cilia, flagella, and transporting substances around the cell by providing pathways for motor proteins to carry vesicles. Two examples of motor proteins that I saw mentioned in the Kaplan books that work with microtubules to transport things around the cell are kinesin and dianin. Cilia are projections from a cell that are involved with moving material along. Quiz time! Can you name the three locations where cilia are found in humans? So they're found in the respiratory system, so in the lungs, in the nervous system, the ependymal cells, and in the reproductive system. Flagella are for movement of the cell itself. Can you name a type of cell that has a flagella? The best example and the go-to is a sperm. In eukaryotes, cilia and flagella have a 9 plus 2 structure, which means they have two microtubules in the middle with nine pairs of microtubules surrounding it. 
I mention it here because as we talked about in the last episode, any location where humans differ from bacteria is a point of interest since it is a location that can be targeted by drugs. So humans have the 9 plus 2 configuration and bacteria have a different configuration depending on the type of bacteria. What are centrioles composed of? Microtubules. Just want to make sure you understand that point. Centrioles are composed of microtubules. Follow-up question. Centrioles attach to what part of the chromosome? And I'm not talking about the centromere. What is the specific location on the centromere they attach? This is a question from episode one. The centrioles attach to the kinetochores. All right, let's move on to intermediate filaments. Intermediate filaments are approximately 10 nanometers thick, and they provide structural support to the cell. So intermediate filaments provide structural support to the cell so that the cell can resist mechanical stress. Intermediate filaments also do a lot with cell-to-cell adhesion and anchoring organelles in place in the cell. Okay, the last one that we're talking about for cytoskeleton is microfilaments. Microfilaments are the smallest component of the cytoskeleton. They are called micro. They are approximately 3 to 6 nanometers in diameter. And microfilaments help with movement within the cell, which is different from cilia and flagella. Microfilaments are made up of actin, and they are organized into bundles. Whenever I think actin, I think of a rope here that is a bunch of small pieces wound together. The actin can use ATP and interact with myosin to help force movement of the cell. In fact, if you remember cytokinesis, again from the first episode, when the cell starts pinching downward to split the cytoplasm, it is the microfilaments that are responsible for this. It uses actin and myosin to pinch the cell together. Microfilaments are very dynamic. They can lengthen and shorten very rapidly and very frequently. If it is becoming longer, it is a process known as actin polymerization. And if it's becoming shorter, it is a process known as depolymerization. <gasps> Woohoo! We are so close to being done with this cell review. The last thing I want to go over is cell theory. Cell theory has four basic parts. One, all living things are composed of cells. Two, the cell is the basic functional unit of life. Three, cells arise only from pre-existing cells. And four, cells carry genetic information in the form of DNA. And DNA is passed from a parent to a daughter cell. I feel like after everything we have talked about, cell theory makes so much sense and is kind of like a it's kind of like a duh. All right, to sum up, cell membranes are made of phospholipid bilayers and cholesterol and proteins with glycose thrown in for good measure and communication. Glycos also do a lot with communication. The membrane is semi-permeable and things get through via passive diffusion and facilitated diffusion. Transportation is aided via proteins. What else? Mitochondria have their own DNA. They kind of do their own thing. We have a bunch of membrane-bound organelles that all have very specific functions. The nucleus has a nuclear envelope that includes two layers of membrane and the nuclear pores. The cytoskeleton is made of proteins, 
and it has three basic components, microtubules, intermediate filaments, and microfilaments. Cell theory states that the basic unit of life is a cell, so all living things are composed of cells. Cells can only come from pre-existing cells, and cells carry genetic information. All right, <laughs> last quiz question. What organelle is continuous with one of the bilayers of the nuclear envelope? Answer, endoplasmic reticulum. That is all I've got for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If these episodes are helping you to review for the MCAT or just review basic biology material, do me a favor and recommend them to a friend. Study hard, friends. <laughs> <laughs>